Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. As we enter year three, year three of the COVID-19 pandemic and settle into our schedule of working from home, homeschooling and hopefully not catching a deadly plague, I thought it would be good to check in with an expert and see how things are going around the Asian region. Who better to join me than Professor Vivian Lin, Executive Associate Dean of LKS Faculty of Medicine at the University of Hong Kong. She is also an adjunct professor of La Trobe Asia. Thank you for joining me, Vivian. Thank you, Matt. It's a great pleasure. How are you enjoying your pandemic so far? Look, Hong Kong has been actually incredibly safe compared with the rest of the world. Mm. Partly through very, very tight border controls. <laughs> uh, border controls somewhat similar to Australia. But now that I'm in Melbourne, I feel like I'm in the land of COVID. Yeah, Despite yeah. the fact that Melbourne is actually still doing better than most of the rest of the world. And uh, you've got an impromptu longer stay as a result. Yes. So uh, the podcast is very grateful for that presence, uh, kind of. So <laughs> we'll take the good with the bad there. So uh, if we could start with the, the bigger picture of the effects of the pandemic. So we're going to be discussing health systems here. Let's just kind of drill into what is a health system? How are you defining that? How is that kind of functioning around the region? Okay. I should say from the outset that when the pandemic first happened, I think people were in the mode of that this is an acute event. And from a communicable disease control viewpoint, we go in there, we fix it, we finish and it's done. But as the pandemic has evolved, we realize this is an ongoing event and the health system has become much more central mm. to the consideration. So how do we think about a health system? Officially, we could define it as all organizations that work to address people's health, whether that's through promotion, prevention, acute care, rehabilitation, or palliation. Now, that does not include carers and individuals who look after themselves. And indeed, most of people's health is actually created by individuals in the home, in the community. Mm. Nor does it include organizations who may influence health greatly, but whose primary purpose is not health. For instance, social security, employment, or environment protection. Mm -hmm. when we think about these organizations and we construct them as a health system, within a national health system, we would say, you know, there's levels of service delivery like public health, primary care, hospitals, aged care. We can look at the research and education institutions that produce the health workforce and that provide the evidence base mm. for health care. We could think about the policymakers who might allocate funding or who might promulgate regulations. So they're part of the health system. And then, of course, we've got medicines and other technologies and the organizations that manufacture, distribute, and make those things available. So these are the different components of a health system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nothing's existing in a bubble and uh, every country is going to have their own different way of approaching things, different strengths and weaknesses and successes. And we're all, to some extent, learning from each other's successes, aren't we? Is that a good way to kind of characterize it? Yes, certainly. I think it's very important to 
recognize that we talk about health systems being path dependent, and that means health systems really reflect history and culture, because when decisions are made. Certain doors open,、mm-hmm. certain doors close. So as health systems evolve, they inevitably reflect the historical development of a country and the kind of decisions that have been made over time. And that's why health systems are so different everywhere. And although we could talk about similar kinds of、uh, political and socio-economic systems and some shared characteristics. At the end of the day, the dynamics are different, the players are different, and the decisions are still different. So then, the question is, what can you learn from countries that are similar versus countries that are different? And can you also learn about failures as well as successes? Okay, well, let's kind of wade into that a little bit. Then you've got a whole range of countries dealing with things in different ways in Asia, and you do hear about some good strategies going on, some countries that are doing well, to some that are pretty much just letting or resigning to the fact that COVID is just going to run everywhere and trying to get the vaccine levels up, different levels of vaccine engagement,、uh, all the way through to North Korea, which has just cut everything off, and that could have been quite effective. We don't know. <laughs> I think there's a big question mark over that. So, so what do you see when you're looking at the pandemic, and especially with with Omicron variant just being so pervasive around the region, if not now, then quite soon, I gather. So, I think if you go back to 2020, in that time, what we have seen is what's often referred to as Asian exceptionalism. Because it was the Asian countries that really adopted the COVID zero policy, and that, of course, includes Australia and New Zealand,、mm. and it held pretty well. Now there are a number of reasons why that could happen. One is maybe the lessons from SARS two thousand and three. So people were immediately concerned and willing to change their behavior.、Mm. And secondly, in many East Asian countries, you certainly long, long, long have a, a custom of wearing masks. Yes, and that is about protecting other people from you when you have a cold. It's very much a common social norm.、Mm. Then, because of SARS, you had many social institutions that didn't wait for government regulations, but immediately kicked in. For instance, I work in Hong Kong. The building I live in, there's a sign in the lift, and Hong Kong has many, many lifts because it's all tall buildings, that says this lift is sanitized every hour. And then you're in the MTR, the subway, because in Hong Kong you rely on public transportation,、mm. and there are people who are just like spraying and cleaning the railings、yeah. inside the carts. So this kind of behavior. Becomes very much part of the norm, without government intervention.、Mm. Of course, city states are a bit easier to manage when you look at Hong Kong and Singapore, for that matter. And when you get into a much more decentralized system, then it's very hard. You look at the Philippines; it's seven thousand islands, more than two hundred languages. The local government is meant to be responsible for health, so the National Department of Health has limited powers, 
but there are 1,500 local governments. Yeah. So okay. how are you going to monitor? How are you going to get supplies there? How are you going to be able to actually work with all the different institutions? There are huge challenges. And so a country like Philippines with the 100 million population will have a much harder time mm. compared with you know, a city-state like Singapore. And then in Taiwan, you've got a very well-developed insurance system, very, very strong IT underpinning. So the ability to track very, very quickly is very different from countries that don't have that. So you have many variations in the approach. Health systems have understandably been under stress then. How has that changed from the start of the pandemic to now when you've got something that is more transmittable. Have you seen health systems in that time adapt? I think initially quite a lot of health systems basically stopped doing everything else. Yeah, okay. So people who had cancer were not getting the treatment. Yeah. People who had diabetes were not getting the follow-up. People who were pregnant were not getting the antenatal care. And then as the pandemic went on, people realized that's not right. You know, this is actually going to have bigger consequences. So this is at the point where telemedicine or telehealth became much more incorporated into a variety of health systems. And interestingly enough, it was probably the mental health area we saw the greatest advance because people with psychiatric illnesses really do need the care and telepsychiatry could provide that. Mm. But also as the period of lockdown went on longer and school children were at home, it was all the more important to attend to the deteriorating mental health and family relations often across many communities. So I think this is where quite a lot of the learnings did happen and adaptation Of course, countries that had a big concern about health system being overwhelmed, and we saw the health systems being overwhelmed in Europe and in the US, put a lot more emphasis on prevention. Very early in public health principles of detect, trace, and isolate became perhaps much more important in Asia as a way of managing that workload on the hospital. Mm. In a place like Hong Kong, If you were positive, you were actually put into a hospital in isolation. Now, that's going to have to be revisited with something like Omicron. Because firstly, it may not be as severe. Secondly, the sheer number of cases that can be expected. So then it becomes a very interesting question of how can you keep Omicron out? Can you still maintain that very strong preventive angle on Omicron or not? Or do you have to change the system of care? I gather that in response to that and also in preference of what's happening down the line, there are many people in health systems already thinking ahead going, right, what do we need to change? What do we need to anticipate we're going to have to change and the way that things are going to function differently? And how do we prepare for a worst case scenario that Omicron isn't going to be the last variant that we encounter and that there's a lot that we need to adjust to and anticipate and be flexible, I guess, with our health systems? You know, I think that in the longer term, universal health coverage has to be 
the fundamental mm. condition for a health system with primary health care as the foundation of universal health coverage. I think that issue has come to the fore much more through the last couple of years. The other element in the longer term that people are now also understanding is the importance of community engagement and community and individual health literacy. Now, initially, people were just thinking about supplies, personal protective equipment, you know, medicines as we learn what medicines work, and now more recently, vaccines. Mm -hmm. And those things are important. They represent a very targeted approach. But if you think about not only the variants that we've seen and expect in the future, but we can expect other diseases. If you take a disease by disease by disease approach, whether that is an infectious disease or chronic disease, then you're forever fixing up one part of the system rather than understand how the different components of the system work as a whole. So when we think about universal health coverage, we're really talking about everyone having access to quality health services without financial hardship. So the first thing you've got to do is to think about how do you remove the financial barriers to access? At the beginning of COVID, we saw countries introducing free COVID tests and COVID services. Now, if you just extend that more broadly to all preventive services, to all vaccines, to maternal and child health, to any number of things, you can actually maintain people's health mm. before they get sick. So prevention is really important, but it takes the financing of preventive services. Now, if people were aware of what good health behavior is, and of course, we have had lots of, you know, advice around diet, physical activity, and all those things in related to chronic or non-communicable diseases. But with the messaging around COVID, around hand hygiene and general environmental hygiene, we're also seeing flu going away yeah. or, or not, you know, peaking in the same way in the winter. So there's a lot about human behavior, whether it's infectious disease or chronic disease, that when we're conscious about how we behave to protect ourselves and protect others, we can also make less use of health services. Mm. So this is really, really important foundation. And then you, if you have primary health care, GPs, ally health, including complementary and alternative health services that are part of the community that reach out and do education and provide that frontline support, then you prevent people from clogging up the hospitals and ringing the ambulance all the time. So this is the kind of health system we need. And I think what COVID has done is to really make countries think a lot more about what will be the health system of the future. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so access to vaccines is a serious problem for a lot of countries, uh, especially ones that are not as wealthy in the region. And there's also the extra element of where you get your vaccine from. So if I can put it crudely down to two options, there's a Western bunch of vaccines and then there's a couple out of China and I guess Russia, if you want to go further afield for yet another vaccine option. And that decision for a country comes down, I guess, to diplomacy and access and cost to some extent, but that can have other kind of flow on effects. So, so how have you seen 
the distribution of vaccines going around the region and access problems when it comes well, to that. Look, look I, I think that this vaccine nationalism as well as vaccine diplomacy actually mm. has not been entirely helpful when we think about global access to vaccine and vaccine equity and really being able to get the global vaccination level up to a high level is actually critical for actually prevention of future variants. So this is really, really important. But we also know actually there are hundreds of candidate vaccines. And the Western ones came out you know, quite early because this is where the powerhouse of research has gone to and then followed by the Chinese. And as you say, there's the Russian, but the Indian one also has had endorsement for emergency use. And then in Taiwan, they were developing their own vaccine and therefore they had not had sufficient supply. They didn't purchase because they wanted to develop their own. And in China, they have not approved the BioNTech and RNA one, because again, they're developing their own mRNA ones. So you cannot, you know, in a sense, not recognize the political economy behind vaccines and yeah, medicines, right? Definitely. And you've got companies who are good at marketing, companies that invest in the research. You've got national governments interested in getting their own vaccines on the market because it's actually industry development for them. Yeah, yeah. Now, if we actually then go to the technical elements, essentially we've had three platforms. We've got the old vaccine platform, the attenuated virus, which is the Sinovac, the Sinopharm. And indeed, this is our measles vaccine, our chickenpox vaccine. This is what we're used to. Mm. And certainly from the early days, people thought this is going to be the safest technology because it's been proven for a whole number of diseases. Yeah. On the other end, we've got the mRNA, which is the most novel one. Now, cancer research has been working with this for a long time, and they're absolutely convinced. The theory, you know, means it's really going to work. But I think a lot of people were a little bit concerned because they really didn't know what's going to be the impact of a new technology when we have seen sometimes new technology you know, have unanticipated consequences. But in this instance, the theory actually has worked. And what's worked in a clinical trial seems to be translating into reality pretty well. We have much more confidence. So it's just going to be a bit of a question now of can people mix the different vaccine platforms? And early research seems to show that that's actually possible and not a bad thing. So can we get people away from vaccine nationalism? In a sense, it's a bit of a question of can we get people away from geopolitics? Oh, boy. (laughs) Right? And I don't know that we can get away from geopolitics in the same way that I don't think we could ever get away from political economy of health. Yeah. Mm. Well, see, the thing is, I I don't think that we can either. Mm. But if anything was ever going to do it, you would think that it would be a global pandemic. But it's still not working. And you would think that would be the case. But, you know, unfortunately, the whole thing has been very much caught Mm. in geopolitics. And when we think about SARS, SARS wasn't so much caught because it wasn't that many countries that were affected. 
H1N1, I mean, people might not even remember it. Mm. It was relatively mild, even though 170 countries had it. The fact that it was relatively mild, people forgot about it. You know, because of SARS, Margaret Chen, as the director general at the time of WHO, had declared H1N1 a public health emergency of international concern. And everyone said she was crying wolf. Mm. And then when Ebola hit... Well, people were very scared because Ebola is scary. But initially, it really was three countries in Africa. And then people criticized Margaret Chen for not going fast enough and declaring it of international concern. Mm, mm. And then we had MERS coronavirus, which is a camel transmitted one. And you see that in the Middle East. It's very, very deadly, but it seems to be quite endemic And when it got to Korea, it started to spread very, very quickly. But people got on top of that, and most people don't remember it anymore. I suspect this one, people will remember for a very long time. But it also has occurred at a time when great power rivalry was, you know, heating up, when we've been talking about the changing international world order. Mm. So I'm afraid that we're not going to be able to get out of the geopolitical discussions. So what has the pandemic done to research translation then from bench to bedside to health systems? Because if you've got this kind of race to develop vaccines, you're really restricting the time that you've got to do extensive testing, I guess. You've, you've got a real urgency and a need for these vaccines to be out there. So what has it done to this research process from your perspective? I think it's actually important to recognise that these three different platforms were able to actually get to a vaccine product quickly because the investment happened during Ebola. Mm. And if it wasn't for the research investment during the Ebola time, we would not be where we are. And of course, there's been so much investment in biomedical research that scientists were able to collaborate, you know, very quickly. So I think in that way, it's a very, very good thing. I mean, the fact that they are only approved for emergency use means that you can get something out into the community while you're doing further research and testing. Because had we not done that, many more millions of people would be in trouble and we would be in lockdown for a much longer period than we are now. And a little bit of competition is not a bad thing because then no one's got the monopoly and then you can actually kind of test the effectiveness in different populations. Mm. But I think the other thing that's really important to recognize is that a vaccine sitting in a bottle does not constitute public health. Public health is when you can get the vaccine to people. That depends on a delivery system. So we're back into the health system question of what is the health system capability of actually getting vaccines into people's arms. Yeah, yeah. Because without a workforce, without service delivery system, without a financing system, you're not going to be able to do it. And so when we get to low and middle income countries, it's not only the price of the vaccine that matters, but it's actually the capability of your health system. Have you got enough workforce? Have you got people who can do an injection? Have you got the ability 
to maintain the vaccines in rural environments. If you look at the mRNA vaccine, you need refrigeration at minus 80 degrees. You're not going to get that in most countries. Yeah, yeah. So these are actually really, really important factors that actually determine who's got access to what. So looking into the future, can we actually make more investments and improve the way health systems operate, the supply system, the logistical system, and actually develop the research capacity mm. in other countries? So we're not just relying on you know a handful of high-income countries and the big transnational pharmaceutical companies, and we can have much more rapid development of not just vaccines, but medicines in general. But I think in terms of research translation, we can't just think about the vaccines and the drugs for treatment. We actually need to think about what do we know about preventive technology? And there, we need a lot more social research and behavioral research and policy evaluation. We have had so many different experiments, natural experiments by governments Mm. of different forms of policy interventions, of locking people down, giving people different kinds of advice. How good is that evidence base? What can we actually learn from that? So maybe, you know, research translation is not just from the bench top to the bedside, but it goes past the bedside, it goes into the community and eventually gets into the cabinet room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very crucial step, I guess. Uh, have you been surprised by, by the speed of it as well? I guess, you know, we're sitting here in the middle of January and the Omicron variant, for example, has been with us for maybe since November, a handful of weeks, really. But within a matter of, you know, a couple of weeks, you're going, right, well, the there's scientists in South Africa saying this about it and they're observing this and this and this on Twitter, you know, and they're releasing their data already and saying, you know, it's doing this to the community, it's doing this to your body. And you've essentially got that kind of knowledge going into the mainstream very quickly because the media picks up on all of that and disseminates it and going, right, here's what you need to be worrying about for the new variant, the top 10 things you need to know. And then you kind of bypass to some extent. I mean, I know that it's going on, but that information is with the public now and it's being digested by the people who are making policy decisions and everything before it's going through intense research or peer review and all that kind of thing. And I know that process is going on in the background, but it's almost like we're racing to the finish. Look, I think one of the things that the WHO has characterized this particular pandemic is that we also have an infodemic going on. Mm. And the infodemic is almost being overwhelmed with information. Of course, some of that information has been filtered through the scientific community. Some of that is just social media and it's organized you know, spread of information, whether that's fake news or whether it's real scientific information. So it's it's a terribly confusing situation. The reason people can do this quickly, firstly, if you look at a place like Hong Kong U Medicine Faculty, it's actually the world number one research center for coronavirus because SARS was a coronavirus. And so Hong Kong U has been at it almost 20 years now. Yeah. So you're actually building on a huge amount of scientific information. Secondly, you've actually got scientists talking to each other all the time. 
I remember back in January 2020, I was just at a friend's house for dinner. And one of the key people in Singapore was ringing my ding, who's one of the key people in Hong Kong, comparing notes, thinking about how best to advise government. So that's an example of how people talk all the time. And just this week, I'm aware of confidential communication between scientists in Hong Kong and Australia about how do you think about the different types of vaccines for children and what are the scientific considerations. Yeah. So, you know, by the time things actually come out, there's been a lot of international exchange. And that is so absolutely critical. And the WHO actually has been facilitating research agendas, both epidemiological and social and biomedical. So this is all what a lot of people don't see on the day-to-day, but there's an enormous amount of work going on. And so many researchers, because they're really committed, have pivoted their research. Because even though they may not have started doing coronavirus, but they know whatever it is they've been working on actually has an application that's relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, there's a a lot of good developments Mm. then. And I I hope that the world maybe, you know, takes a a bit away from all of this experience about the importance of those sort of collaborations and the importance of this research to continue and that this pandemic probably isn't going to be the last one that we ever face. I would certainly say this is not going to be the last pandemic. And I really hope that we can learn. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the Spanish flu There's not many people who have a living memory of it. In Samoa, Spanish flu wiped out a third of the population at the time. Mm. And this is why in the Pacific Islands, you see so much attention to absolutely keeping it out because people still have that oral history and recollection. But so many other places of the world, people do not remember And the thing that I wish everybody would remember is every pandemic brings out the best and the worst of every society. We have seen inequities exposed. Inequities that come from migration, that come from insecure employment, that come from not treating our older people and our disabled people well, this happens. What are we going to do to make sure that doesn't happen with the next pandemic? For me, that's the real preparedness question. It's not just about have we got masks and PPEs and vaccines, all of which are important, but a real preparedness is to make sure that we don't have the same inequities arising. Professor Vivian Lin, thank you for your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review there. They are always very appreciated. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. Vivian Lin, I gather, is wisely not on Twitter. Exactly. (laughs) I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.